Welcome to the Ideas in Action podcast, brought to you by One World, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Chris Jackson, Editor-in-Chief at One World, where our mission is to publish voices and stories that give us new language to rethink the past, understand the present, and imagine new futures. From Ibram Kendi to Carla Cornejo Villavincencio, Tanahasi Coates to Alicia Garza, Kathy Park Hong to Brian Stevenson, and Kali Fajardo Anstein, our authors' work and their lives are dedicated to telling stories and exploring ideas that help us reframe our understanding of the most critical issues in our world and in ourselves. Join me and the One World team each week as we explore the challenges facing our society and share ideas and perspectives from our authors to help us truly see the world we're in and imagine the one to come. Hi, I'm Nicole Counts, Senior Editor at One World, and I'm here with my colleague, Elizabeth Mendez-Berry, Executive Editor at One World. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, Nicole. In this episode, we're going to dive into how storytelling and art can be powerful acts of acknowledgement and healing, both for individuals and for whole communities that are suffering. To explore this further, we spoke with two One World authors who live this out in the work they do every day. Chiara Alegria Hudes is a Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who wrote the book for Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash hit musical, In the Heights, and is the author of My Broken Language. Carla Cornejo Villavicencio is a writer, essayist, and author of The Undocumented Americans, a National Book Award finalist. Together, they share their perspectives on how art and storytelling has changed since they began their careers and how it can be a potent remedy to address individual and communal pain and begin the collective healing process. To get started, here's an observation from Kiara about how storytelling has changed and why it's so important to give people the space and freedom to share their narratives. Here's what Kiara had to say. I am thinking about a play I wrote back in 2004 that was set in Philadelphia, where I'm originally from. A few years before then, I had started to notice in North Philly, young men walking around, you know, like they're going off to boot camp, walking around in camos. And it became clear that this was going to be a new professional outlet now that a war had been declared. This was going to be a new professional pathway in El Barrio for some time to come. And so I decided I wanted to write about Latino men in the United States military. I did a bunch of interviews in my family. My cousin was one such young person who enlisted in the Marines. My uncle, who was an Afro-Boricua from the Bronx, he had served in Vietnam. And uh, everyone in the family is like, oh, never talked to Theo George about Vietnam. He doesn't want to talk about that. So I was quite nervous, but he's the most jolly guy in the world. He's like Boricua Santa Claus. And so I asked him, you know, Theo, can I interview you about your experiences in the service? And my titi had warned me, you know, he doesn't talk about that. He sometimes has nightmares. I was very nervous. You know, these thoughts of what right do I have? to ask. And what happened was, it was one of the the learning moments in my writing life. I asked him one question, what year did you enlist? And he spoke for three hours, laughing, crying, very honest, and called me a week later and said, I feel 30 pounds lighter. And what I learned from that was something I knew instinctively, but got to see, which is that people need to need space to share their narrative. People's narratives matter and they don't always have the space to simply share. Something that struck me in that clip was that when Kiara was talking to her 
Tio, she said, or she was thinking, what right do I have to ask? And I think that thinking actually comes from us being so used to not being asked, so used to not having the space to share our stories. So it's interesting that, you know, her first reaction was, what right do I have to ask? And I'm just curious what you think about that, Elizabeth. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, so many of us come from families where there are so many mysteries, you know, there's so much silence, there's so many conversations that never happen. And I think that builds up a muscle memory, you know, it builds up a clenching, you know, a physical clenching, kind of an emotional clenching. And I think to me, what stuck out was partly that question of who has the right to ask, does Kiara feel like she has the right to ask? And then also the tendency of the people around him to protect him from going back into that story. You know, the idea that he doesn't want to tell the story, he doesn't want to have the conversation. You shouldn't ask those questions. You know, all of all of that armor or all of those layers of, of protection, which ultimately are completely understandable and also mean that we live with these stories stuffed inside of us. And I just love kind of the the unleashing that happens. She asked a single question, you know, and he talked for three hours because he needed to, because he wanted to. Not that that's what everybody's desire is, but I found that really striking. And my experience when I was a journalist of talking to people and really just listening. I mean, the biggest thing is listening and being curious and coming to it with care and a sense that this person is a whole person that and that they're not just what happened, you know, in Vietnam or what they did when they were there. They're all of the things that they are. They're the jolly person that she describes. So I think for me, it's both, you know, her understanding her value as sort of the family chronicler, which is something that comes through in my broken language and comes through in so much of her work. But also realizing that sometimes the reflexive armoring up around these stories may not serve us, you know, and ultimately the whole family, I think, probably experienced just a beginning of healing because of that conversation that they had. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what you were saying about when, you, when you're coming to these stories or, or to people and asking them from their stories, and it's about creating this environment, this loving environment, you know, that's you listening and caring for their story. And it's, you know, I think it's a lot about intent. You know, why are we asking these stories? We're asking them because we believe that they should be told. You know, we believe that, you know, her uncle should feel healing by expressing his story to someone that is coming to it with deep love, you know, which is a theme throughout Kiara's work in, you know, in her memoir and in her plays is, you know, she's coming from a place of deep love, which I think is deep honesty. And it's interesting, you know, uh, we'll hear from Carla in a bit, but, you know, Carla's work as a journalist and and her work with undocumented Americans, a lot of what she was able to accomplish is because she, the intent she had behind interviewing folks and and writing her book was to deeply listen and then to relay what she heard in these caring and honest ways. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, the both of these writers, you know, are 
listening in places, be it within their own families. I mean, a lot of, certainly Carla is thinking a lot about her own family experience, her father, her mother, her brother, they're all characters in in her work, but also listening kind of in these concentric circles outside of themselves and, and having a, a sense of curiosity and care. And I think that you know, for me, what I really appreciate also in that clip is that he was jolly. He was all of these things. He was a, he was a layered human being. He wasn't just his pain. And I think that that's something that I really feel so strongly because of the degrees to which her community, specifically Puerto Rican community in, in Philly and New York, has been pathologized, you know, and written about as an accumulation of trauma. And I think what um, Kiara does is she doesn't look away from that trauma, but she puts it in the context of the joy and fun and just the nuance of who who these people are. And I think Carla does the same. And to me, that is an enormous foundational step for healing, right? Is to be more than the worst thing that has happened to you. You know, there's um this line in Kiara's book that when I first read it, you know, years ago, I just remember feeling so full of like, joy and excitement that she said in her area of North Philly, you know, she she thought the whole world was Puerto Rican. Like she was like, that's all I saw, you know, the pain, the joy, the excitement, like that's, I thought Philly was all Puerto Rican. And she said it wasn't until, you know, she was much older that she realized, you know, Philly is, is a, a deeply um, diverse city. But that idea of writing first and foremost from this place, this the center of the world, you know, and writing all of the layers, which, you know, when she set out to write this book, she was writing through, you know, what she says, all these wars, the drug war, and and she had this uncle that went to Vietnam, and she had family and friends that, you know, went to war during the, the Bush years. And, but even, even if it's about this journey into war, it's still also about this journey to love, you know, your family through and through and to bring them with you, you know, through all your, your creative success, but also throughout your life, even after you leave this place that for a while felt like the center of the world. I think that with her voice and her relationship with them and those casualties, like the the AIDS crisis and all this stuff, the level of kind of affection and sort of lingering, you know, her, her vision of who they are, her grandmother and, you know, her belly and her nakedness and her dancing. And, you know, it's all... It's all there. And I think, um, you know, Kiara means so much to so many of us because A, she is, you know, one of the greatest writers of our time, right? Bar none. Not, not the greatest Puerto Rican writers. He's, she's one of the greatest writers, but also because she sees and is intertwined with the, the people that she brings to life in her work. One of the things that she says in that clip that I don't, I think didn't wind up, um, in what we included, but the sort of punchline is that her uncle goes to see the show, right? How does he feel? How does the family feel when they see themselves portrayed in this way? You know, he loves it. His, his wife is crying, bawling the entire time, but there's a release there. And that is, you know, such a gift that I think every community deserves. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Elizabeth. And I think we can hear from Carla when we're talking about communal release. How could all of this evil be happening and like nothing, nothing is happening in nature? 
I remember being a child, first I was Catholic and then Jehovah's Witness, and I knew the Bible intimately, and I knew that when Jesus died, God was angry, the skies darkened all around the world, and there was an earthquake. And so God was mad, and he let it show through the, through the world, like in a physical way. And then I grew up being like, well, the Holocaust happened. Like, what was the physical manifestation? And was there like a mass tornado? I was just so angry that there was no like worldwide witnessing of our pain. And ours, I meant like migrant pain, what was happening on the border, what was happening with family separation. And then I discovered that the answer was, as had always been, magical realism. Aside from just a literary technique, at least in the the Latin American context, in the Latino context, is a way for us to make sense of things in kind of a religious way. To be like, well, the judges don't listen to us, the police doesn't listen to us, there is no justice, but if my child has been killed by paramilitaries and I bury my child in my garden, there will be like a cherry tree that like you squeeze the cherries and blood comes out. And that's justice. You know, that's witnessing of our pain. And that's how I rediscovered Garcia Marquez. And then I was reading about what Garcia Marquez reads and like Garcia Marquez's approach to journalism, which he did, and his um, approach to writing um, testimonios, which influenced my book, led me to um, the metamorphosis in Kafka. And I just remember the first line, you know, when Gregor Samsa like woke up one morning from an unsettling dream, like he woke up and he realized that he had been turned into a monstrous vermin. I did not know that books were allowed to begin that way. And that also seemed to be our reality. Like one minute we were migrants wearing white in 2006, marching down Fifth Avenue in New York, asking for comprehensive immigration reform and asking for rights for dreamers. And the next minute we were literal vermin who were bringing contagious diseases across the border and who raped us and murderers. And I was like, well, what if that isn't something that I just like tweet about, but what if I just turn this into something that is like manic and grotesque and punk and angry, confusing and something that when people read, it makes them feel like they have a fever. And so it was just like a bunch of influences that I had rejected before and a bunch of influences that like people wouldn't think would influence me. Like when I talk to kids of migrants, I'm like, when, I, when you read my book, I want you to feel like the way you'd feel after a rock concert. And so that's how I feel like I disrupt Latino literature because Latino literature is often like about like Abuelita doing this and like making tamales and shit. And I just have never related to that. And I've just been like, I woke up one day and I was a cockroach. And that is the story of my Latinidad in 2020. And so that's the story that I'm telling right now. So this clip from Carla makes me think about so many things. You know, it makes me think about Colombia and impunity and the fact that Garcia Marquez emerged in a time when the official record, the legal record, the documents lied all the time, you know, and as a as a writer, he was first a journalist. And so he was, you know, as they say, I think writing the first draft of history. But in fact, in a country where the second draft of history in many ways never happens, the first draft really matters. You know, journalism really matters. 
And also magical realism really matters because as Carla says, it enables you to grapple with the horror of in Colombia, hundreds of thousands of people dying in the civil war, dying in another period called La Violencia, hundreds of thousands of people, total impunity, total corruption, you know, just all of that. The art, you know, that he made spoke to this question of collective amnesia and the degree to which in some ways you had to become amnesiac in order to survive, in order to hold or navigate the trauma of history, of the fact that you had been kicked off your land and your grandparents had been kicked off their land. And it was, you know, all of those dynamics. And so he creates the magic to, to go through that, to be able to hold all of that. I mean, there's so much, you know, Carla, her writing gives you a fever, right? Her writing gives you the feeling that you went to a, a rock concert. And another thing that it made me think about is a documentary that just came out on Netflix. It's called Break It All, which is about Latin American rock, the history of Latin American rock. And basically that the rock scene emerged in many of these countries, particularly in Argentina and Chile, in the context of authoritarianism. And rock music was a place for people to tell the truth, to rock out, to, to, to just burst in the way that they needed to every night, you know, and in many cases underground. And those musicians were sometimes actually pursued by the secret police because the authoritarian governments understood how powerful culture was as an antidote to authoritarianism. So I see Carla in that tradition, in the punk rock renegade Latin American tradition. You know, she talks a lot about whether she's a journalist or she's not a journalist, and she rejects the idea of being a journalist, in part, I think, because she is playful and also because she's speaking to greater truths through her writing. You know, for me, her voice and the themes with which she's grappling, the experience of being a Latina writer at a time when the hate crimes against Latinos have escalated, deportations, family separation, all of those things have been happening. And Carla's voice just gets stronger. I mean, I think something that I was thinking about while listening to her clip, especially thinking also about what Kiara had said in the in the first clip is, you know, this this need for release, you know, when the governments that you're under, the, you know, kind of authoritarian, power-hungry, supremacist control that is that has taken over, we need witnessing and we need truth and then we need release, you know? And so it's it's interesting to me that Carla always compares like her work as going to a rock show because I, I think of that that physical kind of screaming release, but also a release that comes when you're so close to other human beings, you know, skin to skin contact, howling into a void and how sometimes it's a different kind of truth. And, you know, with Kiara's book, there's many things that have stayed with me, the readings and the the editing process of that book, which, you know, Chris, her editor, very happily let you and me to read it and, and help with it because we love it so much. Um, but some of the things that I I think about a lot are these scenes where she has, you know, there's like family parties and everyone is standing up and dancing. And, and she talks specifically about how the body moves or how, 
she's coming home from Six Flags with her cousins and legs are on top of other legs and people are crammed into this car. And just thinking about that very specific way that we need to release together um, and through our bodies. And it's interesting the point you made about Carla not considering herself, you know, a, a traditional journalist, because maybe those conventions, maybe within writing, within those rules, don't allow for the kind of truth that her or her community need to tell, you know? If those rules have been written, you know, without your community in mind, they're not for your community to thrive, you know? They're not for those stories to really succeed. And so it's just, it's something that I remind myself often when I am doing any work, whether it's my own, you know, creative adventures or whether it's editing. The first role is that I have to bear witness and then later I can create art. But the first thing is to witness it and to try to witness it in real time and to try to witness it with as much truth as possible. That's such a great point. And, you know, I think that, um, Carla, especially as somebody from Queens, which is a community that was super impacted by the pandemic. And actually I lived there for, for 12 years and it's been so devastating to hear what people are experiencing, both in terms of loss of life and loss of livelihood. And so Carla talks a little bit about how the, the circle of witnesses has expanded um, so much in, in this pandemic. So maybe we can hear that clip. And now we're going to hear from Carla on survivor's guilt and Kiara on where art should go from here. The tone right now is probably one where most people are able to understand something that I think usually pockets of populations are able to understand, which is survivor's guilt. And I think that that is something that a lot more artists should probably be working with as an idea or as an affect. I think it's usually like um, survivors of extreme violence, survivors of genocide, survivors of war, survivors of a lot of things experience survivor's guilt. But I think as, as, as a population, as a country, we're going to be reckoning with that. And I think that's going to be reflected in art. I do think there will be space in the artist community and in writing to actually physically and paradigmatically even rebuild what the notion of a reader is as I'm writing on the page and how I reach my hand out. And if that's saying in the first sentence, I am grotesque, I'm a cockroach. Therefore, if you're reading about me, then you are grotesque too, because I am you. You know, that that reach through the page or that reach across the stage becoming a more of a circular impulse. So one of the things that I think a lot about when it comes to art and the different ways that we brush up against somebody else's story, somebody else's experience, is that theater can be, let's say, a place of tremendous intimacy and discomfort, you know, because you're in this room and there's a performance happening in front of you. And if the, depending on how the lights are and depending how small the space is, the performers can see you. You know, and they can see you responding to the experience of of what they what they have to say. And I've always felt like that could be such an enormously generative space. And, you know, the way that um, Kiara talks about, you know, what her practice is and what she sees it looking like moving forward, I find really, really intriguing. And then I also see it colliding with the problem of theater, which is that it is, you know, one of the most elite 
forms of art, right? And it's maintained and, and managed um, by largely, you know, wealthy white people who only are comfortable seeing particular stories. And so Kiara's work has kind of flown in the face of that. So she's creating this intimacy. She's telling these Boricua stories. And then at the same time, you know, the subscribers to the regional theater company that she's performing in front of have no real personal stake in, the, in those stories or relationship to them many, many times. So I think one of the things that I'm curious about as, you know, one question is the macro, what's going to happen with art? And another question that I'm curious what Nicole thinks about is how Kiara's storytelling in my broken language creates that intimacy in a, in a portable way, in an accessible way, and what that'll mean. Because to me, I'm just so excited about the possibility of people bringing her words into their bodies, into their minds, into their hearts um, through that. And I think, you know, the, the fact that she has built um, such an extraordinary career out of that type of intimacy, and I think the book really captures it, but also builds on it in different ways. I feel like it's a book for this time. I feel like it's a book because this is a family that has lived through pandemic after pandemic after pandemic, drug war, AIDS, you know, all of these different crises, the, ex the experience of colonialism, and they have gotten through it and they do it with such grace and grotesqueness too, right? As she said. So I'm curious, Nicole, what you think about that pivot between, you know, the, the, the theater context to the literary context and Kiara's specific uh, role in this time. This is one of the problems with the arts in general, right? Like people who create art are authors, you know, these, these beautiful artists in, in so many different ways feel called to do it. They, they love to do it, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do, you know? They do it and they create because of this love. But as Kiara, you know, has said that part of loving something this much means that you have to be honest about it. And if we're going to be honest about it, it took a lot of pain to get where Kiara is now, you know, and and to get to the success. And, and with each play that she created, and and, and I think with this book... I don't think it was something that she dreamt up and then and then just could create and and there was no struggle behind it. And you know, I I really think it's worth saying because it's it's something I think about a lot in my in my own family history, in my own communities, in the work we do at One World. Just because someone has arrived at this success or has published a book, you know, and has has quote unquote like made it through this the the pain of the journey doesn't mean that they're okay afterwards, you know, or it doesn't mean that they're stronger than other people. I think Kiara and Carla are both brilliant writers who um, have given us, you know, these, these gifts, their books are gifts, but there are a lot of people who have, who have also tried to do so. And, and unfortunately I think this world is set up not to, not to aid creatives or, people wanting to share their truths, you know? I mean, that, that's partially what I'm thinking about, um, especially in the, in the kind of literary context of it. You know, and to the point of what she created on the page and, you know, thinking about the readers she would like to come to this book, right? If you're, when you're writing these plays or with books, again, with any arts, um, and you're thinking about the fact that there will be probably a large group of people that, aren't coming to your work with the same 
you know, kind of stakes at hand. I, I think that's something I, I talk a lot about with, with the writers at One World is, you know, who are the readers you have in mind for your book? There's one single person or one community. I think it can do a lot for the process to write that down above wherever you do your writing, your computer, your, your notebook, but to write kind of singularly for the person you want to read this book or the person you feel that needs to read this book, because I think that can open up more possibilities for your art. And I think there's, I think when you're thinking, you know, maybe very specifically about a community or a person, whether it's a a younger cousin or a grandmother or, you know, your church, whatever it is, it, it opens up the possibilities, but it also makes it so that you don't feel as restrained in your writing. You know, you feel like you can put everything on the page and be as honest as possible. And it's something in the editing process we're always trying to help our writers feel more comfortable with. We're trying to create this kind of loving and safe space that they can, you know, put everything out there. And and then we can go through and figure out exactly what should be shared. But I think that kind of shared space of honesty is is something that, you know, at least I feel deeply humbled and and grateful to be able to witness, you know, to be able to witness our writers putting their whole truths out there and to craft that into a story that, you know, will inspire, I mean, hopefully millions of people is, you know, it, it's a deep, it's a deep honor. I think one of the things that I really noticed in Kiara's project, which was so interesting, is the, you know, she's a playwright. She's used to telling other people's stories, right? But she was getting, you know, with each draft, she was getting closer and closer and closer to herself. Um, And, you know, a lot of the narrative includes her, her family, Um, But it's also about her. And I think that was a really interesting thing to witness um, as editors to be able to just see her becoming more part of the narrative and finding herself within it and figuring out her role in it um, and how she might just kind of afford herself the same affection and curiosity as she as she did everyone else. I think she said something about that where her mom like said, you know, you have to take care of yourself just as much as you take care of everyone else. And, you know, I think I think that's actually one of my favorite parts of editing is watching the writers, you know, whether it's fiction, poetry, nonfiction, every draft, they're getting closer to their own truths. And, you know, that's what the reader needs to hear. And it's an incredibly hard thing to do to be that honest with yourself and to put that on the page. And, you know, and I'm not saying that there should be some sort of, you know, you just put all your trauma down, but to Carla's point being, you know, the survivor's guilt, what we do with that guilt, you know, how we work through that guilt, I think is saying it, you know, is, is putting language to that. And I think when, once you're getting more into yourself, the closer and closer you get, the wider or the more space there is for the reader to then enter into the narrative, which is a really uh, humbling thing to witness. And I think actually on the point of survivor's guilt, when it comes to Kiara's book, you know, the fact that she, you know, by the age of 10 had been to so many funerals, she had had, there had just been all of these different um, waves of death that her family had, had weathered. And so, you know, how does it feel to be the person 
who makes it through all of that. How does it feel not only to be that person, be the witness, but be the writer, right? The person who actually creates a permanent record of that story. Um, the responsibility associated with that, but also the the need to come to terms with it, you know? And I think that that's something that, again, for me, it's like, how do you, she, the, there are pandemics that are felt very intensely in particular communities. And the reality is that the current pandemic is one of those, right? It has hit, you know, Jackson Heights, Queens, which is where I lived. Um, and I think Corona, Jackson Heights, which is where Carla grew up. Those communities were, you know, it, just at the beginning, so horrifically, you know, over-indexing and in, in deaths and and just the horror of the pandemic. And it's not that, of course, it's hit other communities in, in many ways. It's hit Black communities. It's hit Latinx communities. It's hit Native American communities. But it has hit disproportionately people, you know, who have less money and, and all of those things. And so, you know, it's not, and it, it was interesting hearing Carla talk about survivor's guilt as something that would unite us. I hope that will be true. I think that the sad truth is that in many cases, the people who have been most affected by this are the people who have the least resources to, to come through it. You know, the Kiara story speaks to all of these different, they're not pandemics in the same way, but they are you know, incarceration, you know, the war on drugs, all of these different pieces that have decimated specific communities, decimated them. And yet here they are. And that tension between the the casualty count and the the resilience, you know, is one that it's a dance that I think a lot of um, writers struggle to capture. And I think she does in a, a beautiful job of it. And I think that because of that, you know, we just remember, oh, okay, People have done this before, and this is how they did it. And this is how we might see a way forward for ourselves, even as we grieve. Yeah. I mean, when she talks about, when Kiara talks about, you know, hoping that this moment means that we can change readership, I think that also means it's changing how and why we write. And, you know, what she does in her book, what she chronicles is something I think a lot of writers feel, which is, you know, this guilt of chronicling their communities or their families and surviving certain things that, you know, their family members and friends did not survive. And, you know, I'm I'm not always talking about a literal life or death surviving. There's a lot of different kinds of surviving and, um, and then doing more than just surviving, right? So like thriving and finding joy and trying to bring your communities with you and not feel guilt about also, as you always say, Elizabeth, my favorite uh, Elizabeth word or Elizabeth phrase is splendor, you know, like how do you not feel guilty about having splendor? And um, so I think the question of that Kiara offered is a good one thinking about the future is how will this change readership, which to me means how will this change who we believe are readers or who we believe are uh, viewers of plays or who we believe should basically get um, culture, a certain kind of culture, you know, and who should be allowed in um, and that there, there really shouldn't be any boundaries, you know, and, and hopefully this opens up our world in a new way. I mean, one can hope, right? So um, it was really an honor to, to be in conversation with Carla and Chiara and for so many different reasons, both of their books mean the world to me in different ways. Um, and my relationship to them is different because Carla's I met 
fully formed and Kiara's I got to know as, as it was in development. But, you know, as Latinas, you know, as Latina writers, our canon is so limited, you know, and, um, and, you know, the idea of being edited by a Latina or being work, working with a, as a young writer, I didn't have those experiences. Um, and one of the things that really impacted me in the, in the conversation was when Carla spoke about how Kiara's work had opened up possibilities for her and how when Carla, um, had attended a, a performance, I believe it was in New Haven of, um, in the Heights with her little brother. And she was present in this moment when her little brother felt himself represented uh, on stage for the first time in his life. You know, that just like, Kiara has done that for a lot of people. You know, Kiara's work has helped so many people feel seen. And, you know, just the idea that that moment was important to Carla in her own trajectory as she became who she is and the writer she is and the renegade that she is. Um, I just, it was very moving to be able to witness it and just to think about those moments um, and the ways, I mean, I think Nicole as an editor embodies this. I think that at One World, we're really trying to, to embody that care and that kind of kindred spirit of we're here um, to support you. And Carla does not have a voice that is similar to Kiara's voice. They're extremely different as writers, but that they can feel a current of support and electricity across each other um, is something that I will just cherish. And um, I'm really grateful for, and I think that it speaks to the power of art in, you know, in bearing witness Carla never had to meet Kiara for Kiara to have held Carla's ambitions as a young writer, but they met because of One World and because of Chris Jackson, who's both of their editors. And they have developed a relationship that I think matters to both of them. So I just wanted to mention that because I think for me, you know, as an outsider, I'm, I, you know, I don't know them, but I know their work and it feeds me. Um, and the idea that they're feeding each other also means, means so much. Thank you for listening to the Ideas in Action podcast by One World. For more information on the authors and books discussed in this episode, please follow at One World Books on Instagram or visit OneWorldLit.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice. This podcast has been produced by Pat Stengo and Stephanie Bowen and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I'm Chris Jackson, and until next time, this is Ideas in Action. <laughs>